Well, greetings, friends, and welcome to the Gospel Underground Podcast. This is episode 82, a time to build. I'm broadcasting live, well, live for me, from the Power of Change Worldwide Shedquarters here in Blacksburg, Virginia. We have a very special guest today. One of my friends, one of my good friends, one of my uh, friends I see on the road often stay in his house in the Dallas Metroplex a lot. My friend Rob Zimmerman is here with us today. Say hello to the crew, Rob. Hey, everyone. Thanks for having me on today, Reed. If you're watching the video on our website, Rob has this Zoom background that literally uh, pulled off the heist on me. I was like, wow, Rob, where are you? Are you at some global headquarters things? And he's like, no, it's a background, perfectly blended green screen. Very nice. Rob, thanks for your time today. This is a special podcast. We're in a series of um, episodes that kind of flow from a tweet that I put out in March, uh, which I just titled Seven Things That Need to Make a Comeback in Our Society. Now, comeback or just reemergence or emergence, whatever, these things need to be present. Many times they're not. And I had a guy call me out on Twitter to say, oh, these are actually more than seven things because there's couplets and triplets. But when you define the enumerated list, you can define how many there are, and there are seven. So uh, we've been on the first two, mental toughness, right? A few weeks ago, I had some wrestling coaches on to talk about why we need mental fortitude, not just collapse on every difficulty that comes our way. Uh, and then secondly, marriage and children. I had some brothers from a different mother on that I've been friends with involved in their marriages and weddings for years to talk about being a dad uh, and being a husband. Rob, I know we probably could get into that and enjoy that as well. But today, number three, manufacturing. Four, civility and kindness. Number five, helping local neighbors. Six, courage and strength. Seven, faith, hope, and love. Theological virtues. Today, manufacturing. And my friend Rob Zimmerman is with us because he's an engineer by training. He's an inventor. He's an entrepreneur. He lives now in the Dallas Metroplex. He did live in New Jersey with us uh, at one point in time. I had the privilege of baptizing he and his wife, Christine, when they were members of Jacob's Well. Uh, Rob received a Bachelor's of Science in Mechanical Engineering from Iowa State, Master's of M uh, MBA from Arizona State. Um, he has a husband, father, three kids, one dog named Max. Max still hanging on, still doing okay. Doing well, doing, doing well. well. Okay, Max has been up and down health wise. Been I've actually prayed for Max. Uh, <laughs> Rob has been a friend for about a decade. He's known to message me from time to time about UFC and cryptocurrency and bad beer. Uh, Rob, <laughs> welcome to the show today. Thanks for having me, Reed. Pleasure to be here. Well, give us your recounting on our, our trip to watch the New York Knicks, and I saw the beer you had in the refrigerator and, and, and that experience for you. Well, you know, uh, I like my Keystone Light. Grew up drinking it at Iowa State, and so, um, yeah, it just kind of carried with me. I, I feel like people think it's trash beer, and it probably is trash beer, but it's nostalgic for me, so it, uh, you know, kind of it holds a lot of memories <laughs> for me. So. I'm just messing with you. I love seeing people who love, like, things like Natty Light, Keystone Light, and then exploring. You have explored more when I visit you. You do have a, a different uh, offering now on, on play of uh, uh, diversity in the beer drinking. So we met in New Jersey. Uh, you guys were out there actually for a business reason, right? Tell me what brought you to the Garden State, which you felt like uh, led for you struggling with freedom idolatry. Tell us about your sojourn in Jersey. Uh, so New Jersey was a great trip for me. Um, so when I graduated my MBA, uh, the, the economy was basically in uh, 2009 and uh, obviously the uh, recession that was at hand. And there was a company that picked up um, a, a failing company on the East Coast, and they were a, a filter manufacturing company. Like air filters, um, commercial air filters, overhoods yes. for restaurants and stuff. Yeah, filter the air of the restaurants, yeah. 
That's right. Or even in your home, um, but mostly commercial applications. Um, and that company was bleeding cash. And so um, I went out there to uh, turn it around and they had acquired it to as a distribution point for the East Coast. Oh, wow. Uh, and I'm just going to tell everybody out there that Rob's not going to say this about himself, but Rob's a genius. Um, when coronavirus hit, he started sending a group of friends of ours all these plots about how the pandemic would trend. Before all, like the college, Imperial College of London did all that stuff, we got Rob's graphs and they were really, really accurate. And so he, he's a math guy. He's got his own kind of investing strategies, mathematical equations. Uh, he did make us a little money by getting us into Bitcoin at, at a certain time. And I got out, but uh, made a little money. So Rob's really smart. And so he, you were doing like redoing their manufacturing in that plant in Jersey. Uh, yes, we basically took what they had was a job shop at the time, uh, which is kind of the old school way of doing manufacturing is where you would have specific operations in specific areas versus more of an assembly line, uh, lean manufacturing setup. And so we basically um, uprooted what they currently had, put it in a new building, redid the layout, and made a one piece flow very efficient uh, and brought them profitable in about a year. <laughs> that that's where we go boom <laughs> drop the mic yeah man it was I, i'm always fascinated because i might some of you out there know my background is in uh, applied computer science and physics and uh so rob and i you know rob began growing in his faith rapidly and so we enjoy apologetics and looking at different kind of uh intellectual things and, and then i rob's one of the guys that i actually like to ask him what he does because i like to hear about you know math and graphs and and, and doing cool stuff in business and so Rob is a guy, and when I thought about this episode, and you might be thinking out there, I get why we need to have mental toughness in our society. Maybe I get why, um, you know, marriage and family needs to come back. And this is the gospel underground, right? Church and culture overlapping the borderlands. But why, why manufacturing? Well, I'm passionate about this. So it's one of my seven because during the, uh, the, in the midst of the, the pandemic, the stuff that we make was really called into question. And so my wife and I were, I remember we were watching the news, uh, Rob, and it said, Hey, we, we don't have enough masks because we don't make them. And there's no cotton swab. I think cotton swabs were done in Italy at the time when Italy was burning down. Basically, uh, we don't have acetaminophen because that's not made here. And I just saw it thinking, and I, and I went to a chain of thoughts of like, well, if we don't make the stuff that we need when everybody's dying, uh, isn't that a problem? And so, I thought, man, we need to bring, we need to be sexy back to manufacturing. Now, America manufactures still. Obviously, if you watch certain popular shows on TV and they're always like, we're made in America, everyone's excited about that. Uh, but it's difficult, right? Rob, tell us a little bit about your background in manufacturing and some of your experience with offshoring, you know, domestic manufacturing. So get a little bit of your background. Sure. So uh, manufacturing has kind of always been a part of my life. Um, my grandfather started uh, an aluminum foundry manufacturing plant back in the day. So I grew up shoveling sand, working in molds and kind Boxite, of, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And just grew up in manufacturing, like from a very early age, uh, kind of a blue collar work. And my, it was really important for my grandfather that I was out on the floor and kind of learned the value of a dollar and how to, how to work. Um, and then from there I went to, to school and then, um, did a number of different internships, uh, across a number of different industries, which I think are kind of important today and kind of saw policy decisions um, associated to those. And then when I really started to get in my career was when I started uh, working in air filter manufacturing. Um, and then from there went into um, uh, Zodiac Aerospace where we were building aircraft seats uh, out in Texas. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, manufacturing has kind of always been a part of my life. And um, it's been important to our family and 
as well. Awesome. And I remember that. I almost forgot about the air, airplane seat manufacturing. I remember that now. You did a couple years or a year or so out there? Uh, yeah, I was there for three years. Um, and basically, um, we manufacture all the um, international flight seats. So if you've ever flown across an ocean, you've probably flown on a seat that came out of Gainesville, Texas. We have you to thank, Rob. Thank you for that. I have done that and uh, not doing it now, but I was doing that a lot recently and uh, all came to a halt. And so many people realize some of these realities during the pandemic. And obviously, uh, somebody like you who's been in manufacturing and others probably realize that or you knew or people maybe even in popular culture knew that iPhones are not made and, you know, uh, they're not made in Omaha. They're made in China um, with massive, massive operations that are multinational in themselves now with uh, companies like Foxconn. Um, but many people started to say, well, we can't get we can't get Tylenol. <laughs> what do we can do with that? Uh, we can't get the cotton swabs to stick up our nose to test to see if we're, you know, viral shedding viruses. So uh, Senator Josh Hawley, a young senator, I believe he's an attorney from Missouri. He, he put out an article about, you know, economic recovery. I'm just going to read a few quotes from there uh, from this senator. In particular, he said, never again should the American people find themselves vulnerable to the Chinese Communist Party for critical medical supplies, industrial components in a moment of crisis. Congress must immediately act new local content requirement rules requiring manufacturers of finished project to procure higher percentages of their inputs over time from domestic suppliers uh, for all industries essential to crisis response, medicine, medical equipment as such. So, um this is more than simply saying, hey, we should make it here or there, but we should make certain things here, as a, at least as a percentage, in order to uh, protect our ability to help ourselves. Is that is that right? Yeah. I, I mean, I was as shocked as you were. I mean, I saw the numbers kind of progressing and the pandemic kind of spreading across the globe, which was um, interesting to track. But I think the one thing I didn't really realize or didn't think w- would happen is that we would be fighting a pandemic in the U.S. without basic um, uh, defense mechanisms like face masks or hand sanitizer. Yeah. Um, and we'd have to resort to like homemade <laughs> cloth masks in in the U.S. You know, yeah. we'd run, out, run out of things like toilet paper. I had uh, no idea that um, our manufacturing would be that constrained and wouldn't be able to respond uh, to defend our, our citizens. Yeah. Uh, there was an article by Mark Andreessen that we're going to take up here in a few minutes on this podcast that was called time to build. But one quote from there that was a little shocking too. He said, we, we, we have today the need for things that we don't have. We don't have enough tests or test material, cotton swabs in common regions, enough ventilators, negative pressure rooms, ICU beds. We don't have enough surgical masks, eye shields, medical gowns. And I write this. New York City has put out a desperate call for rain ponchos to be used as medical gowns, rain ponchos in 2020 in America. Right. It was, I think. I think a little bit uh, shocking for all and probably good medicine, uh, if I might use that word, uh, for Americans, because we kind of have this pride and arrogance that we kind of can do it all on our own. We got it all covered. And all of a sudden we got rain ponchos that we need in hospitals to keep people healthy and safe. Another two term senator from Arizona. This was in Newsweek. Uh, Dr. Kelly Ward wrote about she was talking about a, a little bit of a political matter of setting up an economic recovery task force. Uh, but one quote that struck me from her words was the pandemic has amplified the necessity of ensuring that American strategic manufacturing production priorities. And I'll, I'll get your take on these priorities, Rob, food, medicine, 
and this one would be controversial, and weapons, right, are brought back to U.S. soil as a matter of national security. Uh, our nation's manufacturers and producers must have a very large voice on this task force, and they should be incentivized to bring production capacity back to the United States. What do you think about those priorities? Food, medicine, missiles, you know, weapons. Should we be making those things? Yeah, I mean, I think there are already laws in place that um, regarding defense. So if you have, if you make helicopter blades or something like that, that we would need in a time of war, there's laws that don't allow you to take that manufacturing to overseas. Now they have to be domestically produced. So um, those supply chains couldn't get cut off. And I think what the pandemic kind of exposes, maybe um, there's other areas that are necessities for our country outside of just making war machines. Um, that uh, might be crucial to uh, us as a society. Yeah, because because reality is this is a harsh reality, and sometimes people don't want to acknowledge this, but we live in a world that's made up of sinful human beings, uh, different passions and interests uh, that conflict. Obviously, there's never been a time where uh, human beings have not been at enmity with other human beings. And so when you have potentially uh, other peoples that are hostile to other peoples, and they may make the stuff for you to be able to defend or protect or serve your own uh, populace, you start to have really big problems. And that brings up, you know, obviously there's wonderful people. You probably interact with some wonderful people in China who are part of the manufacturing complex there that's been such an uplift for their whole nation and people and economic empowerment. Um, but at the same time, what if their government someday says, no, you can't send, I don't know, the masks or you can't send, you know, the microprocessors that run the missile guidance systems, right? Then then we start to have really big problems. What has been your experience of both, you know, on the per- people side working with China uh, and then your thoughts of the future of that kind of interaction, which obviously before the pandemic with, you know, trade imbalances and things were, was being addressed. Uh, but after the pandemic and through the pandemic and all the things involved with, you know, all the uh, all the things with China, what, what are your thoughts on the state of that relationship? Um, my work in China was pretty interesting. So m- my basic role there was um, carbon copy and uh, final assembly line that we were we had in Gainesville, Texas, for manufacturing aircraft seats and and put it outside the uh, Airbus final assembly line in Tianjin, China. And my interaction with... Um, so basically something you had and in production here, you go and take a, a literally layout machinery, all the process flows, boom, put it there for a, for an that, Airbus. Exactly right. yeah, yeah, okay. Yep. And it was, uh, it was important because China wants things made in China that are going um, into Chinese final, final assembly line. So in this case, Airbus final, final assembly line. I think one of the important things to separate is the Chinese government versus the Chinese people because they're not one and the same. And, um, wait, wait, it's called the people's, is it? No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. Um, but, um, I've traveled to a number of foreign countries and, um, China, I was treated like royalty. Um, they're extremely serving people, extremely nice. I have some great friends that I made. In fact, last night we went, uh, and ate dinner at, um, Oh, one of my friends uh, that I had made in China who I brought, or who's now s- uh, still in the U.S., but we had dinner as a family together and um, have made some really lasting friendships there. So the people of China are fantastic. And um, I pray for the people in places like Hong Kong that are actively fighting against the um, the censorship and um, the, this regime. Yeah, a lot of them Christians as well. And uh there's a lot of connections with uh, global Christianity through Hong Kong and and uh, and then the growing and burgeoning 
massively growing churches, uh, both official and underground in, 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 in Asia and certainly in China as well. Um, you know, in, t- in terms of manufacturing, I think there's a good illustration for me, at least I follow the tech sector pretty closely, just mainly because I, I have a degree in computer science and I like gadgets. And so I listen to tech podcasts and news. And so, you know, where people make stuff. And then, um, certainly the, the impetus of manufacturing more in America has been heard and, you know, Apple trying to do various things stateside more so now, but obviously they're, they're, they're going to be in China, but there's a company called TSMC, which you very much know about, but for our listeners, TSMC is a, uh, Taiwan semiconductor manufacturing company limited. (laughs) It's Taiwan's largest company, right? And the world's most valuable semiconductor company. Semiconductors are the chips that run all the computers, the, the brains inside the machine, so to speak. Um, um, the interesting thing about this company, their largest cu- uh, customer is uh, Apple, Apple Incorporated, you know, uh, made uh, designed in California, made somewhere else. Well, certainly TSMC is one of their, their largest cu- customer. And then the second largest customer for TSMC is Huawei, which is uh, a maker of phones. Some people know that, but also about telecommunications equipment. So the switches and routers and things that make like 5G networks uh, affordable and possible. Well, Huawei is been uh, the subject of uh, many uh, intelligence probes by our country. Uh, and the concern is that the company perhaps is compromised or there may be proof, this is debated, uh, that, that they, you know, they, they could put these routers and then spy on packets coming through them for the government. And somehow uh, that is a big problem. And so America has put a uh, uh, the, kibosh, the, the kibosh on Huawei and we're not using their stuff. And so Google's not putting their apps on their phone anymore. It's a big deal. Well, they're the second largest company uh, that, that TSMC builds mi- microprocessors and chips for. So the interesting thing in the news is that TSMC has just announced recently they're going to build a $12 billion manufacturing plant in Arizona, right? Some oceanfront property there uh, for them in Arizona. Now, this is being politically fought about now between China, Taiwan, and America. And it's kind of weird trinity uh, of difficulty now because manufacturing then becomes very political. Um, and if you think about something like microchips, it's important because – modern equipment and technology for medicine and healthcare. Uh, you got ventilators probably going to have some uh, control systems in it that have microprocessors, uh, weapons, certainly. And then food manufacturing as well. Everything right is used by these. So it's an interesting little microcosm of why well, we need to build stuff here, but everybody needs to build stuff in the world and competing for resources and trying to keep, uh, keep costs down. Uh, Rob, how is it as a business owner or an entrepreneur or trying to get something manufactured? Obviously, there are there are uh, benefits from offshoring and and things that necess- necessarily need to be made here. What is that like being in your seat making those kinds of decisions? Yeah, so a little bit inside of um, kind of what that looks like um, when you're when you're obviously trying to increase profit for your shareholders, you have some, um, obviously, obviously and friends, variables. hold on, let me pause you there. Uh, th- this is a basic tenet of free market capitalism, right? And a lot of people don't understand this. We, we, we even talked with our kids recently, how some kids in their school thought the, the government has all the money. They literally said this kind of stuff. I'm like, Oh my gosh, we're not educating people at all. The government doesn't have all the money. They have money that they are take from the people. 
money and wealth and things are created when value is exchanged between other human beings. And so if somebody has shares in a company, they want that company to make money and make create value and wealth for the company and for the shareholder. So keep going. Capitalism 101. Um, capitalism does not need to be evil, but we won't get political today. Keep going. Sure. Um, so you have basically this, this decision. Um, you could either pay a U.S. worker, which at the time when we were evaluating, doing cost analysis on this was about $18 per hour, fully burdened for a U.S. Uh, manufacturing worker. And then you ha- and then you would contrast this with uh, Mexico at the time, which was $4 an hour. And this is probably, I don't know, six years ago, five years ago now. So it may have changed slightly, but um, relatively speaking, I think we're still close. Six, So like $6 an hour would be your fully burdened cost in China and then $4 in Mexico. And so when you put those out and um, the skill of manufacturing, everything's starting to be automated. So a lot of things regarding just loading test fig- fixtures, um, there's not as much welding as you'd think, you know, uh, which kind of was the manufacturing of the past where you really had to have a, a specific skill in an area. A lot, a lot of times now the machines have taken over the that skill and you're, it's kind of... Because you're snapping um, together pieces that have really low toler- uh, tolerances, we're getting a little technical here, that don't require this kind of cl- clumsy way of, of uh, joining things, right? That's exactly right. Um, and turnover. So, I mean, if you want to de-risk your business and you don't want to shut down your assembly line because you don't have John at the welding table today. Um, and so there's, there's definitely a risk aspect as well. Um, and so what you're trying to do is you're trying to lean on um, automation and machines to be able to reliably do it the same way every single time. And so when you're sitting in the CFO's office and you're ta- talking about, okay, how can we, in how can we, um, make this more efficient, even be more competitive in the marketplace. Maybe we're getting market shares being dropped from us because our seats are too expensive or whatever it may be. Um, these are some of the decisions that are, are put forward. And it's, it, your, your point, a lot of times it's just like, hey, how do we stay in business versus how do we not uh, – um, make more money, but actually just even stay in business. You have to do a lot of the, make a lot of these decisions. Yeah. A lot of, and most business owners aren't Jeff Bezos as much as sometimes people want to make, make it seem to be. Um, a lot of businesses every month barely stay in business and, and, you know, run their operations simply to provide jobs and, and resources for their own families. You know, it's uh, also sometimes you think, well, jo- what about the guy, the 18-hour guy who lives in your neighborhood and you're just going to fire him? Um, this is one of the things that's frustrating for me because, like, we don't have anybody working the cotton gin today. Hey, that cotton gin guy who has the cotton gin expertise, we need to make sure he's going great. Um Whenever there are shifts in, in developments in technology and processes, there are other jobs that created that are created. Uh, many times, though, it's the resistance to these things that like, like I'm telling my telling my son all the time I was like, "Hey, be the guy who can control the robots." Right? I just joke mm-hmm. joke with him about that because he doesn't want to be a guy whose job is going to be replaced by a robot. You want to be the robot engineer because there are other jobs that will become. Now there may be some limits. You know, there are some visions of the future that I oppose for ethical reasons about. Like, hey, let's replace every human with AIs and get rid of ourselves or we'll sit on the little hover deck of WALL-E and get fat and lose our bone density, become pathetic. I think there's a limit, but we're not talking about that. Manufacturing in, 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 in a lot of places, manufacturing jobs in, in say, you know, a Mexican factory run by a company building airline seats, uh, it's probably a really, really good job for that community. So it's complex, not as simple as folks either on the right or left politically want to make this because, you know, it's a it's a hot potato people want to make a fight about. 
Um, but that is a decision you have to make as in business many times. So what, what are some of the motivating factors? I, I, I spoke with a friend who was originally from Iran uh, who immigrated uh, when the Shah came down to the United States, American citizen now, who was talking about he was getting to the point with his business and he was doing some um, educational uh, tools for um, – pharmacy doctors and things prescribing and they were doing some stuff overseas but uh, it was getting so close in price and the price he was considering is look there's not only what we pay people to do it um, but it's also like how much back and forth confusion mistakes and drama and all this stuff and he was saying it was getting much closer with being able to do things stay size but him but he was more of a knowledge work kind of thing uh, describe like all the things that go on to considering that beyond just wages that are paid yeah, sure. So complexity is definitely one of the major uh, components. Um, my grandfather always talks about you never want to be in the business of fence post tops. The idea, <laughs> That's a life idea lesson is, from granddad. Tell us about that. Fence post yeah. tops. Fence post tops. Don't be in the business of fence post tops. But the idea is like commod- like basic commodities that are easily reproduced. Um, so the, the, uh, he uses that as an example of being the most simple part that you could mold and manufacture and that that was not what he wanted to to be in business. And I think there are many things that are very complex. Uh, and those are the things that we uh, kept in the U.S. Um, and, and that we didn't uh, move overseas. So complexity is definitely a major component when you're making those de- decisions. Yeah, anybody can make a, a little piece of wood to tap on the top of a fence post, but uh, not everybody could design the operations at the farm, so to speak. Yeah. Well, hey, let's move to this article by Mark Andreessen. Now, Mark Andreessen, um, if you're not familiar out there, uh, undergrounders, with his name, uh, I want to tell you a little bit about him because this is really uh, contemporaneous with my own life. I was in college uh, in the 1990s, early mid-1990s, in an applied computer science degree. I started in physics but switched about three years in when a, a physicist said, hey, you could have a better job if you learned to code and design chips and stuff and, we, and about five of us who were like yeah we're not trying to be physicists and this guy had come from ibm back into the academy and so he's like unless you want to be a physicist switch to this degree learn about computers and we did that but during that time we were all using the internet but it was like Usenet user groups, which are basically like text-based uh, chat groups on Unix. We were using email through uh, text editors like Elm, Pine, and Pico. I don't know if you've ever seen this stuff, Rob. Are you, you're probably always in graphical inter- interfaces. But we logged in a command line to do the internet. And it was in this era where uh, this undergraduate student, I believe he was an undergrad at the time, Mark Andreessen at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, uh, basically created the first World Wide Web browser to take something called hypertext markup language, which is text, and then use it to structure and display pages on the web. Of course, we all take this for granted now. Um, there was a little bit going on with like these proprietary systems like CompuServe, Prodigy Online Services, one that some of you still may know, America Online with uh, uh, Stephen Case created that. It was crap, walled gardens of crap. Um, and so Andreessen comes along and he creates this thing called the Mosaic Web Browser. And we, you could have links and you could have pictures and man, everybody was just super stoked. He created a company uh, based on the technology that became the Netscape Navigator, which was was one of the rapid stars in the tech uh, industry, made tons of money before Microsoft crushed them. Um, but now he's he's kind of an investor. He's co-founder and partner of a venture capitalist firm uh, called Andreessen Horowitz, which has made investments in tiny little companies like Facebook, Groupon, Twitter, Airbnb, Pinterest, Zynga, Foursquare, Stripe, Coinbase. Coinbase, Rob, you taught me about Coinbase. That's where you buy your, your Litecoin and your Bitcoins. 
Um, <laughs> Mark Andreessen, right? A hero to the tech world and now probably an enemy to communists. Um, he wrote uh, an article during the pandemic. I read a quote from it earlier called, It's Time to Build. And it was kind of like this throwing down a gauntlet during the pandemic when he's meditating on ponchos for wearing in hospitals in New York City uh, to challenge a rally, both all portions of our uh, culture. And he does specifically challenge people on the politically left and the right about building stuff and how that's kind of built into who we are as America. Uh, I know you read this article, uh, Rob. What were some of your thoughts when you read this kind of gauntlet drop down? It's not long. You guys can read it. We'll put it in the show notes. What did you think, Rob, uh, reading Andreessen? I think, uh, well, highly respect Mark. I think he's absolutely brilliant. Um, and the piece he wrote was, is well worth reading if you haven't read it. Um, but he poses some problems like, uh, regarding, okay, why aren't we building? Is it because of regulatory capture? Is it because of desire to build? Do we have, is, is there a desire problem, um, or a money problem? And I think, um, the idea that there's a desire problem, I don't, I don't think that that's the case. I mean, people are very ambitious and, um, constantly striving to get better. So I really don't think there's a desire problem. And then when you look at from, is there a money problem? Um, he said, no, he, he, he didn't think there was a money problem either. And I don't, for the most part, um, uh, my biggest problems with that is that, um, no one's IPOing anymore. I mean, you don't IPO until you're like a $2 billion company. Meaning, meaning nobody's making initial public offerings on the stock market early on based on more potential. There's more, Hey, capital is being withheld till later, right. For companies. Yeah. That's right. I mean, um, and so what's happening is, uh, venture capitalist firms are investing, um, their own money, which is, you know, the elites who have a uh, wealth, <laughs> yeah, uh, who founded are, Netscape, you got a lot of cash. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Um, and are investing in these, you know, up and coming com- companies, whatever they may be, Airbnb, et cetera, Facebook. Um, and so the, the, the small guys or private citizens largely miss out on these massive uh, opportunities of return. So I would agree that money isn't short, that there's things to invest in, uh, just not for the little guys like you and me. <laughs> but Rob, you're an investor in power of change, so I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> right. um, but he points out some other problems like regulatory capture, which I think is this idea of crony capitalism where laws are put forth to protect the um, embedded interests of you know different companies, which is definitely the case. We see this in, in cases like uh, Tesla, where here in the state of Texas, you can't <laughs> buy a car directly from Texas. You actually have to like do the transaction in a different state and then import the car in um, and kind of do some crazy roundabouts. So there's definitely all these- To satisfy California. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Well, Um, this is interesting because both both parties have kind of emphasized there needs to be some uh, campaign finance or lobbying reform or these crony capitalist stuff where it's like everyone's interest is getting it's like when you do a mortgage right everybody gets a little money off of the deal right i kind of my mom my mom works closing mortgages i kind of like she gets the money off the deal um but this is bigger right when you have a large manufacturing car company and you have this kind of nonsense going on uh where this kind of the system and everybody kind of take care of things along the way kind of messes up kind of the ability to build things yeah i think uh laws in general uh can have great intent, but they have largely a lot of unintended consequences um, that can be frustrating for um, a lot of different people and even citizens. So I'll give you a quick example. Um, When I worked at Zodiac Aerospace, um, 
we obviously put these nice little displays in the back of your headrests and um they're actually like the tvs uh, right the tvs to keep watching movies overseas over the atlantic that's right. That's right. Um, but it turns out there's only two suppliers that can actually do that because they're FFA, FAA certified. And so this small TV that shouldn't cost no more than a hundred dollars, uh, <laughs> actually costs $10,000 to put in. So if you have an, like, so if you, you had an employee drop one of those on the floor, which happens, of course you, that those, those things are $10,000. And so that's kind of an obvious, um, way where laws artificially inflate prices because of, um, artificial monopolies. Oh man, I didn't know that. And those screens aren't that good. You could probably find one in Walmart to put on the back of your minivan thing for 50 bucks. It's way better than the screen. And it's in the, okay, now I'm pissed off. Um, so, so another quote from Andreessen that really, uh, he was trying to make the case and obviously he's writing this to the kind of the American public or the at large reader. And so he's using common uh, examples, right. Of things that people would understand. And he says, you see this lack of building uh, in housing in the physical footprint of our cities. We can't build nearly enough housing in our cities with surging economic potential, which results in crazy skyrocketing house prices in places like San Francisco, making it nearly possible for regular people to move in and take the jobs of the future. And this is what shocked to me. He said, we also can't build the cities themselves anymore. When the producer of HBO's Westworld wanted to pr- portray the American city of the future, they didn't film in Seattle or Los Angeles or Austin. I've seen the roads in Austin. They went to Singapore. We should have gleaming skyscrapers and spectacular living environments in all of our best cities at every level, way beyond what we have now. Where are they? And and that's crazy. Like, hey, let's make an American futuristic city in this kind of artificial intelligence kind of robot war TV show, and we can't do that. So the American city of the future is actually in Asia. It's in Singapore, which is fantastic cities that we see being built. He also says we see it in education. You know, we have really good education. We don't get it to enough people. Um, and these problems we could solve, education, cities, manufacturing, housing, transportation, so where are the fast aircrafts, millions of delivery drones, high-speed trains, monorails, hyperloops? Hyperloops is cool if you hadn't looked into those guys. Uh, flying cars. We, we're pretty much on the Jetson with Zoom. I mean, you are Zooming now, but cars ain't flying yet. We're getting close maybe with quadcopters. But um, his thing is like, hey, we have to want to do these things. And his, his thought was the problem is desire. What did you think of his diagnosis? It's not so much money, although there's some money issues with regulation that maybe need to be addressed. What uh, what about our want to? Um, are we just on autopilot as a society and a culture? Um, I don't believe so. I think the I think the desire is there. Um, the desire to like provide for your family and um, better your own life, I think, is like innate in the human spirit. And um, the the industries that he laid out, like healthcare, education, housing, uh, transportation. When he references transportation, you n- you'll note that he only talks about air, print, air transportation. He's not really talking about the, the auto industry, obviously, much bigger. Um, yeah. yeah. Which I think is also interesting. <laughs> yeah. Um, He's buddies but when you look Elon, at these things, Yeah, yeah. But when you look at these things, these are highly, highly regulated industries. And when you look at housing, housing being a problem, obviously, the, the cost of housing um, in areas like he's living in San Francisco, um, isn't really an issue when you go into the fly, they call the flyover States, right. Uh, where I grew <laughs> up in Iowa and Texas, it's a, there's not really a, a housing problem at all. Um, and so I think 
there's a common thread among all these different industries where you see, okay, the price of a TV can drop by like 90%, right? Um, versus the college education is going up yeah. uh, and is multiplied by 5X. I'm sure you're yeah. uh, keenly aware of this. Yeah. And, and the, <laughs> yes, about to send one off to these places and some of my money. Thankfully, she was super smart, and so they're giving her lots of money. <laughs> um, yeah, I, but I think um, as the, this pandemic has happened, um, and it's brought down a lot of laws that were once in place, whether it be like te- we saw it in Teledoc, um, so healthcare, uh, yeah, yeah, a lot of yeah. laws. Were Telemedicine, banned. yeah. That's yeah. right. Um, and so I think it definitely accelerated a lot of these things that were kind of already starting to progress and maybe have made like, you know, five and 10 year leaps uh, recently just because of this, the, the pandemic. And then in education, we have uh, new up and coming uh, un- universities. I don't know what you want to call them, but like Lambda School, which is a coding school that you can um, now join and you, you can join for free, right? And then when learn you learn to develop you, software, that's right. Yeah. And then when you go and get uh, your first job, you pay uh, a certain portion of your income uh, for just a few years to pay them back. So basically, they're taking all the upfront investment away for you, uh, which I think is really neat. And, and if um, you get a good paying job because of that, then you pay you pay it back, so to speak, rather than just doing right. the, the big, huge trillion dollar debt stuff. That's exactly right. And it's, it's very reasonable. You have to be over a certain threshold making, you know, making, I don't know what it is, like maybe over $80,000 or something like that. Um, but it's, 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 um, you know, very reasonable. So I think there's a lot of things and even questions that Mark put in the Mark put in his article around why is Harvard not, um, educating, you know, millions of kids versus this small minority yeah. of kids. Yeah. Why is but it taking PPP loans? <laughs> Right. But there's a lot of things out out there that had just came up in recently. So if you look at schools like MIT, I don't know if a lot of people know this, but MIT has has put out all of their coursework, all of their lectures, um, all of their content for free. It's on iTunes iTunes University, I believe, right? And other places. Right. Exactly. So now you can get all of this educational content for free. You can get MIT education. Granted, you don't get the the piece of paper. So maybe there's a... uh, um, opportunity to or the social sort of or the interaction, the friends, the network that are beneficial, but not the, you know, but if you don't have that and you have the education, it's still, still usually valuable for free. Yeah, that's right. That's right. But uh, yeah, the, the content is there. And I mean, as uh, hiring, as hiring goes within companies, that's all you're really looking for is people to demonstrate capability. Um, mm-hmm. And so, um, a degree was kind of a way to initially set that, right? So Yeah, to, that, to verify yes. that the person actually has certain educated tools for the world they're stepping into. And now there probably is, and th- this will take us far afield, so I won't go there other than to say this, Rob. There probably is a place for a liberal arts education still so that we are shaping well-rounded human beings and not just code monkeys. Um, <laughs> because obviously, you know, we want people to be able to interact, have social soft skills as well that many times people in the tech industry need to realize the world needs a lot more. I think that's some of the success of like Apple as a company is that they kind of mix hard and soft skills together uh, with creativity and liberal arts with uh, kind of hardcore engineering. And so I think that is a definitely path to the future. And I think Andreessen, as we wrap up his, his article, his thing when he said it was a matter of will, he was pointing more at the will of these regulators, of these leaders uh, that kind of hold back the wills and desires of people who want to provide for their family. And he throws down a challenge both to, hey, those on the right, this is supposed to be your world. Why don't you get out of this crony capitalism? Oh, and people on the left, if the public sector is 
is the solution to these things. Let's prove it. Where's the government sponsored building projects that are super successful uh, and efficient and good for the folk and in these cities that are that are maybe even dominated by that political vision. Uh, hey, let's do it on the left and right instead of just kind of keeping this on coast where everything degrades and Certainly, you know, one of the things that, you know, engineering and politics comes together with a lot of people talking about infrastructure, which I think may be an area where building may happen again, where we fix the bridges from collapsing and maybe start building things together. I think the political, um, uh, and I told you, right, well, hey, don't, we don't want to get too political, but I think the political divide, uh, is exacerbated right now because the soft skills on both sides uh, kindness, civility, which we're going here in one of these episodes has been lost. Um, I need to get a politician on here who will talk and advocate for uh, kindness and civility in our public discourse. Um, but as we close, why does this matter biblically? Why, read? do you have this? Uh, why are we talking process engineering and policy and manufacturing on the gospel underground? Well, here's the thing. Uh, the biblical vision of life has this mandate upon human beings and part of the image of God, even in, in our worldview, is that we're going to make stuff. We are responsible stewards of this world and its natural resources. And that both gives emphasis for utilizing them for the good and flourishing of humanity and the glory of God, but also not just raping and pillaging the world uh, and destruction. And so this text, I think both the uh, the capitalists and the environmentalists ought to meet over T. This is in Genesis 1. God said, let, make, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And this is the Hebrew word Adam. It's not a, just in a singular masculine. It is a human being solidarity word. Let us make these human beings, let them have dominion. That's a rule of stewardship over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air and the livestock and all over things on the earth that creep on, on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them and said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds and the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so quite literally, and theologians have debated this, Rob, for, for hundreds of years of what it means to be image of God, some located in kind of our metaphysical or ontological capacities, emotion, intellect, will, certain Christian philosophers still do that today. Um, others have located in this complementary male and female in community doing something, and others have located it functionally, the job that we've been given to do to represent God on the earth. And I, I when I heard that in theology school, uh, I was like, well, why, why do we make these three things disagree? You have to have emotions, intellect, and will to, it's kind of the job requirements to do the job. And we certainly do it together as male and female families and communities going forward. So that some theologians call this the creation or cultural mandate that God didn't want simply, um, you know, to leave the earth as it is and not do anything with it, but to use our gifts and abilities as image of God to do good to one another and bless the world uh, and bring it under control. Subdue, sometimes people think, or dominion, they think these are dominating terms, but they're really like, hey, take care of the house kind of words that we have been charged with. So certainly the cultural mandate means that industry and business, even if you're just hardcore, don't want any of that, you just want to farm in your backyard, you're going to have to weed that garden, grow those tomatoes, you're going to fight with bugs, you're going to fight the creeping things in order to do your dominion uh, well. And then secondly, not only the mandate that we have from God, the duty of government, right? 
the state has a purpose in in you know, our collective joining together. Now, what that purpose is, right? There, you get your political parties and your fighting and all that. But, but at least it's for the protection of its citizen, the enforcing of ethics and justice and right and wrong. Right? This comes from Romans thirteen, where the state bears the sword. That means the enforcement, um, or the tanks, or the missiles, or whatever it is, or the jails. Right? The state can put you in jail, uh, and and we should be doing good in the world. If not, there should be justice. And that's why when there's injustice, there's such frustration and anger because the state's not doing his job. And if the state has this mandate to protect and serve the public good, um, we certainly have to uh, manufacture the things that would make that possible, right? Like being able to have swabs up your nose, or if somebody's pointing missiles at us, a missile defense system that has microchips that we can at least not we can be assured of don't have bugs in them that are going to uh, create a traumatic uh, problem when we go to protect people. Finally, uh, not only the creation mandate, but the duty of government requires us to care about this, but also loving God and loving our neighbors. This is the great commandment. This is in Matthew 22 version, but the Pharisees heard that they, he had, Jesus had silenced the Sadducees. They gathered together And one of them, a lawyer, don't let that throw you off, uh, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor and as yourself. And on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And so God has given us, right, this ability to love him. Uh, And I take this to mean uh, in other passages to love him with everything we are like all our faculties, right? There's a way we love God with our bodies by using it in a certain way, not to kill and destroy or mess it up and mix things wrongly. We love God with our emotions. We, some people are more emotional than the others. There's a spectrum, but you know, we're not, we're not robots yet. Um, We love God with our minds. There's an intellectual and in, in guys like you and me who like to read apologetics and things, we love to love God with our minds to think about his truth and his beauty in creation. That's why people do science. Uh, Many of the people in the European scientific revolution that created the modern world wanted to think God's thoughts after him and look at the creation of the artist to know the artist well and to love God. So doing things, building things is part of who we are. And we can build housing that's better for people. We can build systems that heat our homes. It's better for the environment. We should do that and do that well. And that requires us to manufacture. Rob, any closing thoughts before we uh, we wrap up here today? Thanks so much, man, for being with me. Yeah, no problem. Um, thanks for having me. Um, I think uh, I'll end with uh, something that you alluded to is, is love. And um, Robbie Zacharias, um, obviously, um, he's his passing. And I think one of the best quotes that I read that really stays with me is, uh, love is the greatest apologetic. And then the, and the need for that in our society today. And I think that's so, so important. Uh, and that's how I'm going to kind of remember Ravi. Amen. Amen. And to be honest, uh, Rob, I hope you always have to examine your own motives. I hope these seven things are motivated 
by love. That's why we're going to end with the theological verse of faith, hope, and love. So if you want to be mentally tough, it's not just so you can be a tough guy. It's so you can show up when your family needs you and when your business needs you and not collapse under the difficulties of life because you trust God, who is the ultimate strong one. And certainly to be married, you have to love in every way, not just the romantic way. You have to submit yourself to the good of another and kids and families. And certainly, Rob, thank you for manufacturing things. I hope to get your new invention sometime in the marketplace to put in my air filter uh, deal. Tell us a little bit about, can you tell us a little bit about your new company or is that, is that okay? Yeah, sure. I'll, I'm happy to describe it. So it's called the Monarch air filter. Um, and the basic premise about it is it has a permanent frame, um, which allows the, allows the media to be shipped to you at a much cheaper cost. So and what Rob means by that is that when you stick an air filter in your air filter, it has all this cardboard around it and all this stuff. Really what matters is the stuff in the middle that filters the air. But the shipping costs and all the cost to you is all that cardboard stuff. He's saying I'm making that uh, a permanent metal frame, which will make it more efficient. You keep that, and then you just ship us these little inserts, or you buy them at Lowe's hopefully someday or wherever your plans are. Keep going. Sorry. Yeah, no, that's, that's absolutely correct. Um, the idea is to make um, clean air, uh, good quality clean air, affordable for every family. So currently, these, these air filters will cost like thirty dollars, um, and we're just we're looking to drop that by you know two thirds the price. So I think there's a dramatic revolution uh, that's going to happen here in the near near future, and hopefully patents hold up. Um, but nevertheless, I think uh, it'll provide a great service to the rest of society and. Um, all the homes in the future will have virus free air. Yeah. Yeah. The Merv level is going to be virus, man. You got to sell that. Your wife is going to do a good job selling that. Um, business trophy air.com, the Monarch air filter, hopefully be able to get that wherever you get things like that online here soon. Uh, patent pending. Is that right? You said, or patents get granted already. Bad and pending. Uh, get your lawyers because there are sinners who will try to rip you off, but defend your patent and sell them. I'm going to buy one for sure uh, to, uh, when those come back and are available. I actually got to see a prototype on your kitchen table, which was a wonderful blessing for me when I was with you there in Dallas. Can't wait to see you again. Maybe this fall. I'm supposed to be back in Dallas. Thank you for joining us, Rob. On the Gospel Underground. The Gospel Underground is a joint production of Power of Change and the Bonhoeffer House. Review us on iTunes. Rob, you need to go review us. Give us five stars. Write a paragraph. Send your comments, feedback, or questions that you might want us to take up here on the Underground to info at gospelunderground.org. We are a dialogue taking place in the borderlands between the church and culture where we make stuff. All of us. Thanks, Rob, for joining us today. Peace. Thanks so much, Reed.